So it's, it's, it's a great treat for us to be here, actually, uh, Annette and I. We feel East Anglian, really, now, um, by nature, if not by origin. I come from the north of Scotland, as some of you know, and I go on about it, as you have to, really, if you come from Scotland, but not quite in the same way as some of them. <laughs> it's lovely to be here. Um, I've been invited to ask, to speak, rather, this morning, uh, this afternoon, talk about spaceman, space out, um, on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that's what you asked me to speak about. And uh, as most of you, I suspect, are already filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, you may wonder, why, um, why would I want to do that? Well, one of the aspects of being filled with the Spirit, as you will know, I'm sure, is a hunger to uh, evangelize. Because that's what Jesus wants. He wants, I got into trouble for saying it when I first said it, so please forgive me and understand that I say it with the, the best of motives. Jesus is slightly unusual in many ways, but one in particular. He wants the most enormous bride. I mean, really, really enormous. And... Uh, and he needs our cooperation to make sure that that happens. So everywhere you look, you see people and you think to yourself, Jesus wants you. Jesus wants you in his family. Uh, to be his friend. To do what he wants us to do. So if you ask, we've been singing about it, haven't we? Thank you very much indeed. Worship, people, groups, wonderful. We've been singing about it. Um, he's anointed us. And he's anointed us with the Holy Spirit because he knows that we can't otherwise do what he's called us to do, which is to preach the good news. Uh, and to um, um, just do it in any, any possible way that we can. A young man apparently uh, said to um, Spurgeon, I'm brushing up on my Baptist <laughs> credentials, said to um, uh, Spurgeon apparently on one occasion, Dr. Spurgeon, I don't like your means of evangelism. And pray, sir, said the good Dr. Spurgeon, what is yours? Oh, he said, I, I haven't really got one. So Spurgeon said, well, you forgive me if I prefer the one I have <laughs> to the one that you have not. And as some of you will know, and you didn't expect me to come all this way without mentioning it, I've been associated with the Alpha course now for... Well, for really a very long time. And uh, the reason that I love the Alpha Course, it's not a course, actually, as you probably know, really. Oh, I mean, it's called an Alpha Course. But it's a community activity. That's what I love about it. The whole church can be involved. Uh, Nicky Gumbel at Holy Trinity Brompton now has three courses a year. He, he has just over a 1,000 people on each course. That includes the team. And the average age is 27. Don't let anybody say that the young people today are not interested in spiritual things. They are very interested in spiritual things, so often, sadly, the wrong spiritual things. And we need to get in there with the right spiritual things so that they discover about Jesus. And I don't know, um, if you do, you can please tell me, perhaps not now, but at the end. I don't know of any more effective means of evangelization. I prefer the Catholic expression, evangelization, which, which sort of implies a process. They use that word takes time, than the Alpha course. 
because um, it's designed for those of us who would not call themselves evangelists. Uh, I don't think I would call myself an evangelist. I mean, I I'm not quite sure. I love the idea of it. I love the thought of it. I love the fruit of it. But it's quite hard. I mean, Nikki and I have a friend who's a Nigerian. He's just a natural evangelist. He goes into a happy eater or a little chef or wherever it is. He goes to a fish and chip shop and he bangs on the table and he says, excuse me, could I have squat just for a few minutes? And they all say, yeah. And he, he says, I want to talk to you about Jesus. I don't see myself doing that. <laughs> but the astonishing thing is that when he's finished, so many of them, they say, oh, thank you so much. Really, really helpful. And we all wonder why we didn't do that, but we couldn't. But we can invite a friend, can't we? We can help to cook the food, can't we? We can move the chairs, can't we? We can operate the sound. We can do whatever it is. We can form a small group. We can listen, can't we? As you probably know on Alpha, we have a questionnaire at the end. Some years ago, I read a questionnaire from a prisoner in, Broadmoor, in Dartmoor, Dartmoor. He'd been in prison for 20 years. And one of the questions that we ask on the questionnaire is, what did you most like about him? What did you least like about him? To the question, what did you most like about Alpha? He, he replied, it's the first time I remember anybody asking me what I think. Up to then, it was just shut up, sit down, get out, do what you're told, don't answer back. And because it's strange, isn't it, how God works? He's so kind. Because when he discovered that the team were interested in what he thought, and not just after his scalp, talking endlessly, preaching the gospel always, correcting him, shutting him up, interested in actually what he thought, because we talk, as you're on the Alpha course for a few minutes, 30, some, whatever it is, 20, 30 minutes, we can surely listen to them for the same amount of time. Even if they're talking what we regard as total heresy, total blasphemy, it's what they think. And because he discovered that the team were interested in what he thought, he, he gave his, his testimony later, because he gave his life to the Lord. He said, I thought perhaps if they were interested in what I thought, perhaps God was interested in what I thought. And that turned him into a believer. And he gave his life to the Lord. And of course, Jesus is interested in what we think. I often think, you know, he doesn't sort of send these diktats, as it were, from heaven. You know, he often, he started one story, do you remember? What do you think? What do we think? <laughs> Lord, tell us what you think. Wait a minute. What do you think? A man had two sons. He said to them both, come and work in the vineyard. And one said, yes, I will, and didn't. And the other said, no, I won't. But later changed his mind. It's the New Testament word for repentance. He turned and went. And Jesus says, which do you think? So Jesus is always encouraging us to think. <laughs> and I would love to encourage us this afternoon to think. I'm sure you never stop. How can I best evangelize? If you've got a better way, go for it and let us know. But otherwise, I wonder if you'd consider getting involved in an alpha course. They're all over the place. Uh, I don't know when they're running here. Yeah, I should have asked, but I'm sure they are. And just offer to help and invite your friend. Uh, as some of you know, when Annette, I came to faith, as I often say, uh, through a combination of my wife and the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you it's a very powerful combination. <laughs> 
But when she was filled with the Holy Spirit, she immediately sent an invitation. There wasn't such thing as Alpha in those days. She, she got in a speaker from somewhere, and she sent an invitation to every friend she knew, everybody she knew, actually. I didn't know her very well. I knew her brother, but not her very well. Just saying, bring a Bible and a tennis racket and come for the weekend and hear about Jesus. And um, as, as I often say when talking about it, I, I'm slightly ashamed to say that I... I was 27 years old, and I thought I could probably cope. I knew there was an agenda. But I was very touched to be asked. And um, I was the first person that replied, which I think was some encouragement to her. Because she thought perhaps nobody would reply, and nobody would come. Actually, lots of people came. Just bring a Bible and a tennis racket. Hear about Jesus. (laughs) You can't but say no. Uh, Would you like to come on the Alpha course? Just come to the first evening, and you don't have to come back if you don't like it. Just come and see. Come and see what the disciples said to their friends. Come and see. It's a community. And that's why it's absolutely key that the community is worth coming to see and look at. Which is why I'm so thrilled, one of the reasons I may say so, that you've all got together. Because I think the Lord just loves it. One of the most special conferences I think I was on ever, and I went is in a humble capacity as a member of the team, when John Wimber and Ralph Neighbor went to Warsaw. John Wimber representing the free churches, <laughs> who are highly esteemed in Anglican circles. All of them. Because you get away with murder. <laughs> <laughs> you can do what you like, we think. Um, John Wimber representing them and Ralph Martin representing the Catholic Church. And Poland, of course, is being a Polish conference in Warsaw, it was 80% Catholic, as you'd expect, and 20% Baptist. And the Spirit of God seemed to love it. I'd never forgotten it. The Spirit of God was all over the place. Ministry was just such fun. Because into your head came a question. You asked the question, you got the answer. You prayed, and it was done. People were healed. People were set on fire, filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, somebody had a vision there of a cage, an animal cage in a zoo, and all the cage doors being opened. And their picture was that for so long they'd been under the communist regime, they didn't know what to do when the cage doors were opened. But when they were opened, the picture that this man had was that the animals suddenly realized. And I'd love to say that to us. I don't know how long it'll go on for. I hope a very long time, but don't take it for granted. The cage doors are open. We can invite anybody we like without fear or favor. It's a precious, precious thing. So I thought I'd take this opportunity, if I may, to um, being asked to speak about how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, I was going to give the talk that I would give on an Alpha course, in principle, give or take. Because so many people have said to me, uh, you know, I'm... I can see myself giving the talk, or really all the talks. Who is Jesus? Why did he die? How and why should I pray? How and why should I read the Bible? Does God heal today? I can see myself giving all those talks, but I really don't think I could give so many people, particularly, well, so many people. I don't see myself giving the talk on how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit. And um, so I thought I would do that. Uh, partly because I'm talking to you, because you've been asked me to do that, but partly because I'm hoping you will do it. 
and you will see, uh, you'll do it much better, actually. If I can find the notes that I am looking for. Um, you'll do it probably much better. But this is what I would do on the whole um, to cover this issue of how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because um, when, as I was saying quite recently, um, you, revival will come not just through churches filled with people, but with people filled with the Holy Spirit. Because when you're filled with the Spirit, you, you, you begin to look for ways to do what God wants you to do. So Model Alpha Evening has for long been um, as part of the, the ways in which I think we can help one another. Uh, I don't often quote Billy Connolly for obvious reasons. But uh, I remember him on the Parkinson, Michael Parkinson show some years ago. They're great friends, as you probably know. Um, I always felt whenever Parky had a gap, Billy Connolly was wheeled on. And, um, but I remember him saying that he, twice a year, he goes back to the tenement block that he was brought up in, in Glasgow, right in a, in a very poor part, uh, a council estate in Glasgow. And he says, I go back there and I speak to the young people there. And I simply tell them, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. I don't know that they can because they haven't got his personality or his drive or his whatever it takes. But his message is, you can do it. And I want to say the same to you. You could do it. And before the enemy gets a foothold in you and says, you can't, I want you to say, wait a minute, why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I? Or you can do it, of course, with DVDs or videos or any of these things that's been recorded and filmed, and you can do it live stream if you want to. Um, where we live, Annette and I, uh, we did... Um, I was going to do live streaming, but Nikki Nardes has one or two slightly younger people, and their language and their stories is not always fitting for the average age of the people in Albra where we live. So we tend to do the old films. Um, but you can do it. Some of you may know a story I sometimes tell, uh, so forgive me. Well, let me ask the other way around. Anybody here who does not know a story I sometimes tell about the uh, crisis in the Edinburgh Zoo? You don't know? Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Yes. Well, you can correct me if I get it wrong, and you will know that it's meant to be, it's meant to be a joke, so you can laugh if you want to. Um, and, and let me just say again, I'm Scots, so it's not a sort of racist joke. You don't have to get sensitive about the Scots. Um, the, the crisis in the Edinburgh Zoo, their gorilla died. They had no gorilla. Thank you. And it coincided with a young man who went to the zoo to ask for a job. And the manager said, this is fantastic. He said, because our, look, this is wonderful. Here is a gorilla skin, and there's a gorilla helmet. You are the gorilla. So he was thrilled to have a job, and they, oh, thank you. And they were thrilled to have a gorilla. And he started practicing because there was a bank holiday the following Monday, and he wanted to be, make sure he got it all right. So he was practicing on these bars and things, and he got frightfully overexcited and very confident. And when the crowds arrived on the Monday morning, he was swinging away on his bars. And at one point, he got slightly carried away, and he found himself flying up and over the top of his cage into the next door cage, which was the lion's cage. 
And he landed with a thud about six feet away from the lion, who got to his feet and started padding towards, rubbing his eyes with his paw and, and padding towards our friend. At which point, I'm afraid, our friend lost his nerve altogether and he started shouting out, help! He said, help! Get me out of here! Quick, help! And he heard a slightly furry voice in, in his ear which said, shut up or we'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, funny enough... <laughs> Funnily enough, I tell that story at an Alpha conference we were doing in Moscow, and they laughed immoderately. They went on and on and on and on. So much so that my friend who came in late said to me, what were you saying? And, and I began to wonder what the interpreter was saying. I thought he was telling them, you know, you lose confidence if you're not careful. And I thought perhaps he was telling them a joke of his own because he didn't think mine was good enough. But later, my Moscow friends who run a church there said, no, 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 it isn't that at all. He said, under the communists, they don't expect zoos to have real animals. Because <laughs> nothing is real at all. Well, now, the story, and I tell it partly because I love it, as you can see, but the other reason that I tell it is that it raises a number of interesting issues. One of which is, of course, what makes a real gorilla. But I can see that's of limited interest here. It raises another story, uh, intri uh, issue, which I think is more interesting, which is what makes a real Christian. Is it the inside or the outside? And what happens if the inside and the outside don't agree? And for many, many congregations, you know, up and down the country, many people have got, that is a real issue, I think. They want to look like a Christian... They want to behave like a Christian. They want to sound like a Christian. But they don't feel like a Christian. They tell, they're, told they ought to, or they're told that a byproduct of the Spirit of God is joy, but they don't feel joyful. And they certainly don't look it. Well, it's an issue. And that's the issue that I think we're in when we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in Romans 8, as you will know, St. Paul says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So there's no question that when we come to Christ, indeed, we come to Christ by, by the spirit. We can't come to Christ without the spirit. And no one can say Jesus is Lord without the influence, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But in Ephesians 5 as you may remember in verse 18, St. Paul says to Christian people, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a um, continuous imperative. Go on. It's not just that once in 1924 I was filled with the Holy Spirit and now look at me, just in case you're doing the Mass, I wasn't alive in 1924. It isn't that. It's at every moment of the day and night I ask the Lord to make sure that I'm filled with the Spirit. And if I say something that the Lord doesn't really approve of, the Spirit withdraws. Not very far, but he withdraws because he doesn't want to be a party to that. 
if I do things that God doesn't really approve of, he withdraws. And we know it. And we have to say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I repent of that. Please, fill me again with your Holy Spirit. Now, if you have a Bible, uh, you might like to turn uh, in it to Acts. Um, I want to look at a number, or one of the examples particularly, in Acts chapter 19. Because it's a classic example. There are a number of examples of the outpouring of spirits in the, act, in the Acts. And it's an interesting study, actually, as you go through the Acts. You can see the, the apostles from time to time. We read about Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. St. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. The apostles, filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 19, verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. Notice they were disciples already. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I've often wondered what it was he noticed about them that made him ask the question. (laughs) It would be thought to be rather a direct question where I came from. Uh, Did you receive the Spirit? And and in many cases would have received an appropriate answer. What do you mean? Are you saying I haven't been filled with it? No, I'm not saying anything at all. And just saying, did you? Now, what was it about them? Was it their gloom? I don't know. But he asked a direct question. And what I love about the people in Ephesus was they said, equally directly, they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul says, well, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And although it's not in the book there, I think what happened next was that Paul said, Ah, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. Now John's baptism works something like this. We sin, we repent, and we're forgiven. Uh, We sin again, often the same sin, because it's got easier. And we repent again, and of course, we're forgiven again. And we sin again, usually the same sin, unless by this time we have redefined sin, as many sections of the church are doing, so that it isn't a sin after all in my, our books, because we've given up trying to stop it. But hopefully we repent again, and of course we're forgiven again. Because St. John reminds us, if we sin, he doesn't say when we sin, he says if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father up in heaven. There's a conversation going on. Father, forgive them, because they're mine. Forgive them. Now may I humbly ask you, it's a rhetorical question, you don't have to answer, it's not children's church. Do you, do you know that experience? The same, same thing. And we begin to despair if we haven't given up altogether. And what I think St. Paul explained to them, presumably it was that the Holy Spirit comes to break the power of sin so that we don't have to sin. We can, but we don't have to. We do not have to. We don't have to. <laughs> St. Paul writing to the Corinthians, you remember, he says to them, um, 
There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. It's very vulgar to be tempted. Everybody's tempted, not just you. But with the temptation, God will provide a way out so that you don't have to give in to the sin. Now, the enemy won't tell you that. The enemy will tell you, you are being tempted like no one's ever been tempted in the world. You better give in now and get on with the repenting process because it's going to happen. That's what he tells you. And the Spirit of God is busy whispering to you, it doesn't have to be like that. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted more than you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape. Amen? That is the word of God. We're committed to the word of God, aren't we? If, if God says it, that's what the truth is. And St. John says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to do two things, you remember, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from the effect of our sins. Because otherwise the sin gets easier. I often think in connection with Henry VIII, once you've murdered one wife, I imagine it gets easier to move on to the second one and the third one and so on. Anyway, whatever it was St. Paul said on verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, as he did on that case, not always, doesn't always say that, but he did on this occasion, the Holy Spirit came on them and they, they did two things on that occasion. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. And I love this verse, don't you? There were about 12 men in all, about. And that was the beginning of the church in Ephesus that we're still reading about. And Paul stayed there because he could see it was fertile ground. And he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Wonderful. Now, we're told that they did those two things on that occasion. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. So what did they experience? They experienced, number one, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to say a word about that, if I may. The experience is different for everyone. And I, I, I feel we ought to emphasize that. Because you know, sometimes people say, uh, you know, well, my friend, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they did this, 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 and this. I haven't done this, 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 and this. Therefore, I haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Any of you who have got more than one child, we've got four. And we treat them differently insofar as they are different. I, mean, I could say things to my... I'll tell you which one it was. But I could say things to one of them in five seconds that it would take me five minutes to explain to another one. Because their sensitivities are different. And they're not always listening anyway. And God's the same. God will speak to you in a different way. So don't let the enemy say, you're not like him and therefore you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. If you ask, as we'll come to in a moment, if you ask to be filled with the Spirit, you're filled with the Spirit. I remember John Wimber telling us he was doing a, uh, a mission, uh, um, yes, a mission, I think, in Germany. And he um, asked the Lord to fill them all with the Holy Spirit. And there was a man just standing there, absolutely motionless. And John said, I went up to him and I said, what is happening? And the man, German man, said, um, nothing. 
So John said, well, hold out your hands. He said, I can't move. <laughs> so if you call that nothing, it was the Spirit of God. Other people lie on the floor. It's easier for God to deal with them on the floor. Other people laugh. Other people cry. It, it doesn't really matter. The effect, as we always used to say, is, is, is what you look like when you come up off the floor. Much more important. What happens when you go out there into the world and you begin to behave like a Christian because you feel like a Christian for the first time and you're beginning to get really, really excited about that. And the mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit, I would like to suggest, is, um, is the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul, writing to the Galatians, you remember, he says, you can always tell the fruit of the Spirit. You can always tell something that is of the Spirit. Is there more love, more joy, more peace, more gentleness, more kindness, more self-control? That's the Spirit. If there's bitterness and carping and criticism and grumpiness, and doesn't sound like the Spirit. That's all Paul is saying. So how do we know when they're filled with the Spirit? Well, listen to them. Look at them. See how they behave. I don't know if you're hearing confessions at the moment, but last night on my way home from Lowestoft, for reasons that are still a mystery to me, my children will say it's to do with age, but it's nothing to do with age at all. I, I hit the curb with the front wheel. And um, I think it was... The road arrangement is... is... <laughs> anyway, suddenly there was this curbstone in front of the car. And my wife was wonderful, let me say so about it. She never said anything, anything negative about it at all. She, she, you'd have thought it was a regular occurrence, which at the moment, <laughs> which at the moment, by the grace of God, is not. And, uh, and then before I knew where I was, the front left tire was completely flat. And I was sitting there wondering how long it would take the AA to get there. When I, I saw in the mirror, there was a, a black car driven up behind. And this young man got out and he said, um, can I help? I said, oh, I said, I'd love you, because I'm not very good at that sort of thing. I mean, I think if I had hours and lots of light and people to help, I could probably do it. Anyway, he said, um, I'll, I'll change the tire for you. He said, there's no problem at all. I've done a lot of mechanical work. So I said, what are you doing now? He said, I work in the fish and chip shop in Kissingland. I call him the Angel Jamie. He was, his name is Jamie. So if you go and get fish and chips in Kessingland, will you give him my love and thank him very much indeed? Um, I said to him, because I was fishing, to discover he could be Christian because he was behaving like a Christian. He looked like a Christian. And he stopped like a Christian to help a couple that he thought were a thousand years old at quarter past ten at night. That's how you tell. I'm so grateful to him. And I still am. The angel Jamie. The fruit of the Spirit is a mark of being filled with the Spirit. Secondly, they were released in praise. For they heard them, we're told in Acts 10, praising God. Something is released inside and you begin to want to praise God. Not because you have to, but because you want to. You just think how wonderful he is. I often think that's why people sometimes cry when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They sometimes laugh. I, sometimes, I often think when they, that you don't have to do that, but sometimes people do. They react in different ways. I often think people laughing is simply the Spirit of God. They're laughing at the sheer effrontery of the devil who's been tying them up for years 
to tell them that they were guilty, no good, never would be any good, and never had been any good. Has the devil ever told you that? That's the language he uses. You're no good, you never were any good, you never will be any good. Yes? And of course it's a half-truth, which is why it's so difficult to deal with. Because we never were any good. That is true. So it's a bit difficult to refute that. But equally, Jesus is up next door to us saying, come on, before you accept all that rubbish, I have redeemed you. So you never were much good, but now I think you're terrific. And you're committed to Jesus' view about the world and everything in it, aren't you? When you gave your life to the Lord, you said, Lord, I'll believe anything you tell me. If you can make it clear to me, I'll believe it. Well, this is what he, he's telling you. I think you're terrific. Lord, you don't know me. I do. I know you better than yourself. That's what I love about that lovely story in John 8. You remember the woman taken in adultery? Hauled before Jesus. The religious people. The established church, probably. waiting to see if Jesus was going to agree to her being stoned, because that was what the law said. You remember the story? And If you've been to theological college, you will know that there are shells of books, all designed to tell you what it was, because Jesus started writing in the sand. I don't know any more than they do, because the books conclude at the end that we don't really know. <laughs> but being theologians, they don't find that easy to write. <laughs> I love theologians um, I don't know either but I have a feeling that what he was writing was the names of all the ladies that these respectable elderly gentlemen had been involved in I think Doris Jean Helen and one by one they all forgive me if you're called any of those things one by one they all began to melt away do you remember and then Jesus looked up and he said to her, have they all gone? Is there nobody here to condemn you? And she said, no, sir, no one. And he said to her, neither do I. Go, do you remember? And sin no more. It wasn't go because it doesn't matter. It matters hugely. But what was, a what was at stake in that confrontation, in that meeting, what was at stake, I, I think, was Jesus' reputation as the friend of sinners. And she was waiting to see whether he sided with her or with them. And he sided with her. Now what I love about that story is that Jesus doesn't go on and on, on, on about the past. He sees the potential. Now, that lady had quite a history. Again, I'm not being rude about it. Please don't think I am. But nowadays, she would have been, I think, recommended to have hours of counseling. Because she had quite a history, by the sound of it. And Jesus just says, go. And sin no more. And Jesus would never have said to her, sin no more, if he had thought that it was not possible for her to sin no more. Because she was so corrupt and abused, and badly treated. Jesus looks at the potential, and he looks at you, and he looks at you, and he looks at you, and he says, come on, come on, let's move on. Well, Lord, I've got such a, I know, 
forget about that. The future begins today. The oldest person that I am aware of who's done Alpha at Holy Trinity Brompton was 84. I think 84, I'm looking to my wife, she's a statistician. He was an Australian, and he spent the summer here in this country and he, with his daughter in London. And she took him to the Alpha course. And his return ticket required him to leave just before the last session. And he was devastated. And uh, she said to him, trying to console him, she said, well, Dad, never mind. She said, the last session, after all, is only how can I make the most of the rest of my life? And in that forthright way that Australians have sometimes, he said to her, what do you mean? He said, I want to make the most of the rest of my life. 84. I do too. Didn't you? You want to make the most of the rest of your life? Of course. They were released in praise. On this occasion, we're told too, they received a new language. They began to speak in tongues. I, I, I always spend a minute or two on this issue um, when we're doing Alpha because so many, particularly young people who haven't been sort of exposed to unhelpful teaching on these things, so many young people, when filled with the Holy Spirit, not just young people actually, I shouldn't know why I say that, uh, anybody, so many people begin spontaneously to speak in another language. And if we don't teach about it, they'll think they've gone mad. Whereas actually, they're just beginning to become normal. Let me make this clear for what it's worth. I'm not a classic Pentecostalist. That's to say, I don't think it's a mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I think you can get to heaven without ever having prayed in tongues. But it's too far to come here without being honest, and I want to be honest with you. I can't think why you would want to get to heaven without ever having prayed in tongues. Because it's a very precious gift. It's one of the gifts, it's not the only gift, there are lots of gifts. But it's the one that we principally teach about because it's the one that causes most confusion. And if there's confusion, the only person to benefit from confusion is the devil, who just wants you to be confused. And nobody wants us to be confused. So I spend a moment or two on it. What is happening when we're praying in tongues? Number one, it's a form of prayer. The three verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14, contain three absolutely crucial verses on this gift. Verse 2, St. Paul says, If I pray in another language, or I pray in a tongue, I'm speaking not to men, but to God. Now again, if it was children's church, I would ask you, what do we call it when we're speaking to God? And you would all reply in unison, Prayer. So number one, St. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14.2 is that it's not a waste of time. It's not gobbledygook. It's not nonsense. It's not a psychological release. It's not a weird thing that strange people down the road at the other side of Lowestoft do to whom we only go if we are in deep trouble. It's not that at all. It's a form of prayer. And uh, if you'll forgive me making a little party political point, the Pentecostal church in Great Britain grew out of the Anglican church. The church council in Sunderland in 1903 were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They all began to pray in tongues and they were all thrown out of the Anglican church. 
I'm not going to ask if you can believe it, because I know you can. <laughs> Cuthbert Barsley, when he was Bishop of Coventry, apparently once said that delirious emotionalism is not the chief danger of the Church of England. Well, I think he's probably right. And I'm a loyal, loyal, keen member of the Church of England, so don't misunderstand me. The second verse that St. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4, he says, if I pray in another language, praying in tongues, if you do that, you edify yourself. Edify. Perfectly true, he goes on to say that it's probably better to prophesy. Because prophecy builds up other people and praying in tongues, often on your own, builds you up. But on the side, what St. Paul is saying is, if you want to build yourself up, pray in tongues. So my question is, do you want to build yourself up? Of course you do. Or you wouldn't read the Bible, you wouldn't go to church, you wouldn't pray, you wouldn't do half these things. Now bear in mind, I'm speaking at the moment about the private use of this gift. St. Paul makes a distinction between the use of it in church, in public, as it were, with other people, which I'm not talking about at the moment at all. There are conditions there, there are things that Paul says have to be, you know, translations and all that sort of thing. It's a different matter. But on your own is a form of prayer. It builds you up. And verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 14, which I think may be the key to the whole thing, where St. Paul says, as you may remember, if I pray in another language... My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, what does that mean? John Wesley used to say that God has bound himself to do nothing save in answer to prayer. He could, but he won't. And whenever he has a plan, he raises up people to pray it into existence. I suppose the the most recent revival that we could confidently call revival would be the Hebridean one in the 1950s. Astonishing things uh, went on. Twenty years before that, a, a group of elderly ladies, I say this men to our shame, were praying and praying and praying, Lord, send revival. Lord, send revival. And after 20 years, I don't know how it works. Something in heaven... God moved, that's good enough, I'll do what you've asked me to do. Twenty years, Lord sent revival, and revival came. So you and I often say, you know, we might say, Lord, what, what would you like me to pray for? And um, I think the Lord sometimes says, well, actually, I'm quite busy, I've got a number of universes I'm running, and quite a lot going on in the world. Is there anybody who's willing to pray without insisting on understanding what I'm praying, trying to do? And you say, Lord, I will. A hand goes up. The language that God gives you, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, which is a very, very popular chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, all about love, yes, yes, but it starts with, though I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, which tells us that the language that God gives you may be a human language, which somebody on earth will understand, possibly in China or somewhere, or it may be an angelic language, in which case nobody on earth will understand it, but only the angels. How exciting is that? An angelic language it could be. 
And as you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, what would you like me to pray? The Lord says, well, I'll tell you what, I'd love you just to pray. But honestly, honestly, I don't think I'll ever get you to understand what I want you to pray. I don't think God would use language like that. But that's what the way it comes across. Would you just pray in the language that I will give you? St. Paul says, when I pray in another language, in the tongues, my spirit prays, whatever that is, but my mind is unfruitful. And do you know what happens? When God in heaven hears the prayer that his spirit has inspired your spirit to pray, he says, Amen. And things change. We'll never know. We'll never know until we get to heaven how that's come about or what the process was. But we know that God wants us. And I have noticed wherever we've gone recently, when I say recently, in the last few years, God is raising up intercessors. Because the house of faith that God is building in these last days is being built on intercession. We who preach occasionally like to think it's being built on preaching. It's not. And these preachers here are wasting every moment of their lives if there aren't people within their communities, congregations, the people of God, praying and praying and praying. Lord, bless this work. Bless this work. Put in the foundations. Now, this church presumably has foundations. You don't see them, but if they weren't here, we wouldn't be safe sitting where we are. The foundations of the house of God now is the intercession. And some of you, I suspect, God is calling to intercession. It's a very difficult gift to handle. Very difficult, because I've often noticed it, because um, when everybody else is having fun and having a party and laughing and enjoying themselves, you want to curl up in a corner and cry. Because you've begun to understand what God feels about thousands of people in Lowestoft and beyond on their way to destruction. And you can't bear it, because he can't bear it. And you say, Lord, I have got to do something. Uh, we had a woman years ago in our, in our home group. We had a home group, and this dear woman came. And, and the first evening, she said, I hope we're going to pray for the House of Commons tonight. I said, oh, mm, okay. So we prayed for the House of Commons. The following Tuesday, she said, I hope we're going to pray for the House of Commons again tonight. I said, no, no, honestly, I don't think we can. Because she would have emptied the whole group. We, we, we would have ground to a halt. And it worried me because it was the only thing on her heart. And then I felt the Lord saying to me, this is the gift that I have given her. This is the calling upon her life. So I said to her, look, why don't you find five or six other people who feel called to pray for the House of Commons and get together in your flat and pray. It worked a treat. Because she was called, they were called. And we could pray for other things. I'm not saying I'm against praying for the House of Commons. Goodness knows we know they need prayer. But there are a lot of things that need prayer. Um, ben kind of referred to the fact that I'm a bishop. I'm primarily a bishop in Uganda, an African bishop. Well, I can't tell you how many things there are that we should be praying for. So it's a question of what God is calling us to do. And as you say, if you say, Lord, I, I'm up for that. You remember the children's letters to God? You remember that little book that they published about 10 years ago, was it? My favorite is still the little short letter that said, Dear God, eight-year-old he was, 
Dear God, count me in your friend Herbie. Well, if you can say that to the Lord, count me in your friend. Then he'll give you the things to pray for. And uh, Annette, when our children were growing up, and still, still actually, would stand at the sink. Of course, I was beside her unless I could find clerical duties that kept me away from the sink. She'd be praying in tongues for our children. Now we don't even know where they are in the world because they're of that age. But we know that they need prayer. And you pray for them. And then as the Lord speaks to you, you move into English. Then as you go back into tongues, then you go back into English. And you back into tongues, back into English. And it's a constant way. And this is a fantastic gift. I was preaching one Sunday night at Hodgenty Brompton some years ago and um, around the sort of Pentecostal theme. And this young man came up to me with blazing eyes. I don't suppose you have young men with blazing eyes in your congregations. And he was very angry. And he said to me, are you saying I have got to pray in tongues? I said, no, I'm not. You don't actually have to be here if you don't want to. So, so he said, well, what are you saying? I said, well, I'm just saying, wouldn't you like to? And he said, mm, well, why would I want to? And I read him those three verses. Because it's a form of prayer. It builds you up and enables you to pray the prayer that the Spirit is inspiring you to pray. His prayer. And sets you free to pray. And the Spirit helps you with groans, St. Paul talks about, that nobody can understand. Oh, he said, that's quite different. <laughs> now, because he wanted it, we prayed, and the Lord gave it to him. Because the secret of receiving the Spirit is to ask, to ask, and to ask. So, how do we receive the Spirit then? Supposing we're all excited about it. Because we got to the point. We've given our lives to the Lord. We understand that the Lord wants us to be filled with the Spirit. Maybe talk more about that tonight. How do I receive? Turn with me, if you will, to St. Luke chapter 11. One of the most extraordinary stories, I think, in the New Testament Certainly the most extraordinary story that Jesus told, I think. Luke chapter 11. Jesus taught them how to pray, as you may remember, uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And then he said to them this. Supposing one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight, and he says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And the one inside him answers... <laughs> Don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, said Jesus, that he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend. Yet because of the man's boldness, importunity was the old word, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now picture this scene. The man comes to us. Why I say such a strange story? The man comes in the door. And he says, I want some bread. I've just got a friend who's come. Could I have some bread? And I, I think I thought the story might say, yeah, of course. How much would you like? <laughs> but then he says, no, go away. So back he comes. Go away. My children are with me in bed. And any of you who have had young children, as we have, do you remember that moment 
when the last one has just got to sleep and you and your spouse have perhaps five minutes of adult conversation before one of you falls asleep through sheer exhaustion. That's the moment. And finally, the man is so desperate, he opens the door and he says, what would you like? Take anything you want. Do you want cornflakes? Do you want butter? Do you want cheese? Do you want toast? Do you want marmalade? Do you want... Just take anything and go. That's Jesus' story. Even if he's friend, he wouldn't give it him. But he'd give it him because he's sat up with him going asking. Now, what I think is so strange is that Jesus then says, So, I say to you, keep on asking and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Now, please bear in mind that there's something within us, it's the enemy, of course, whispering, even as I say that, yeah, but not you. It's what I call the, it's, sort of, it's an Americanism, but it's a sort of yeah, but fans. Yeah, but not you. I can see why it might give him the spirit. I can see why it might give him the spirit. And I see why it might give him the spirit. Because they presumably need it. They, you know. But not me. The lie. It's a lie. An absolute lie. Anyone. And then Jesus turns it round. Do you remember? And he says, for everyone who asks receives. Whoever seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. And then I have often imagined that Jesus must have seen some look on the disciples' faces that said, well, Lord, wait a minute. What does this mean? What will happen if I go home and tell my wife, I prayed to be filled with the Spirit? What will happen if I have to go home and tell my husband, I prayed to be filled with the Spirit? My vicar, my, my children. Is this a good thing? Anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. Because Jesus goes on to say, which one of you, if his child asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion that will bite him and sting him? And it's, it's inconceivable. And if you then, Jesus says, though you're evil, you're evil. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I'm not sure we all knew that the story was about the Holy Spirit until then. We thought it was about bread and butter and eggs, and, but it's not. It's about the Spirit and that longing in our hearts to be close to the Lord, to have him living in us so that there'll be less of us and more of him, more and more of your spirit. So we can begin to understand what St. Paul means when he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And I often think somebody, you know, standing beside St. Paul at that time must have said, well, come on, Paul, what are you talking about? You no longer live. You look to me as though you're still living. And he goes on to say, you remember, yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the tradition from which I come, I think has been relatively strong in what Christ has done for me, but relatively weak on what Christ wants to do in me, by living in me. 
Now, there are three things that sometimes hold us back. I just want to identify them, and then we can put them to one side. Doubt. We have to confess. Unbelief is a killer. The cynicism of the modern age is, is what kills the spiritual life. There's a most chilling verse in Mark's Gospel, do you remember, that even Jesus could do no great thing in Nazareth. Do you remember why? Because of their unbelief. And the world is full of unbelief. We sort of idolize what unbelief if we're not careful. We have to confess it. Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm going to go back to your word. Your word tells me if I ask, I receive. I'm going to dare to believe that. The definition of faith in um, Alpha is finding a promise of God and daring to believe it. Daring to believe it. Lord, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to receive. The second barrier that I think we can notice is fear. But bear in mind, as St. Paul writes to Timothy, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. Fear is not in God's armory. It's the enemy that sows fear. What if, what if, what if? Okay? Lord, I confess that. And the third barrier sometimes is inadequacy. Lord, I'm again sown by the enemy. I don't feel I could keep it up. And I don't want to add hypocrisy to my other weaknesses and sins. So I'm not going to start. Well, take it out and look at it. Why are you fearful of that? If God thinks you're up for this, who are you to say that you're not? And the remedy for that is, well, Lord, I am what I am. I'm so sorry. But I want to be what you want me to be. And I'm going to ask you. and I'm going to dare to believe and I'm going to receive. And then you receive by receiving. So that as we ask, as we're going to do in a moment or two, if you're happy, because we've asked, we've received. And then you go out confident that you've received. You may not feel any different at the moment. You may not see any signs of anything that you'd hoped for at the moment. But if you ask, you receive. And if you receive, you begin to show the signs of those who have Christ living in them. Amen? Would you like to stand? Now again, I'm not sure what your tradition is, so please forgive me. Uh, but I encourage people to hold their hands out. Uh, it's, as I often say, it's not part of the liturgy. It's the opposite of this. This means, oh dear, Lord, I dare you to touch me. And this means, Lord, I want everything you can give me. But I never like to pray this prayer about being filled with the Spirit without making sure, and I'm sure you will understand why, and I'm sure you will forgive me if I do it. I want to make quite sure that each of us and all of us is confident that we are born from above, a child of God. Because the Spirit comes to make us conscious that we are a child of God. And I'm going to pray a very short prayer. So if anybody is any doubt about that, 
you could echo this prayer in your heart in which we ask Jesus to come in to forgive us for our sins and to make us sure that we are born from above. And then we'll pray for everybody, all of us, to be filled and refilled and refilled with the Holy Spirit. Does that sound all right? First of all, the prayer. For any of you who are, would have to say, if I said to you, are you, do you know that you're a child of God? Do you know that you're born from above? Do you know that you're an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven? If you hesitated for a moment, then please pray this prayer, if you'd like to, in the silence of your own heart, which will make sure that you, what I would call, ink in what may have been written in pencil before. Your desire for that. And then we'll pray for the Holy Spirit, because he's here. Here then is the prayer. Just echo it silently in your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for dying for me and making it possible for me to be right with God. Forgive me for everything in the past that has hurt you. You don't have to go grubbing about in the past. He'll remind you of anything that he really wants to talk to you about. That you need to confess silently. And trusting your promise... That if I ask you to come into my heart, you will come. I ask you, Lord Jesus Christ, to come into my heart and be my Savior and Lord. Forever. Amen. Now confidently we can ask the Lord to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your promise that Jesus gave, that if we ask, we receive. We ask you, Father, Fill us with your Holy Spirit once again. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Now let's wait on the Lord for a moment or two.